<laughs> I don't know why, but that one stuck with me. 30 whatever years later. Some things were always meant to be together, like chocolate and peanut butter, and apparently, according to this commercial, people who like chocolate and peanut butter. For those that didn't live through the freewheeling 80s, movie theaters were a lot more relaxed back then in what you could bring into the theater. Either that or some started selling jars of peanut butter in case of an unexpected popcorn shortage or something along that line. Some things were always meant to be together, but some things never were. For example, Tessie Thomas, nicknamed the Missile Woman of India, for her work as project director on the Agni-4 missile was given her birth name by her devout Nasrani Syrian Christian parents who named her after Mother Teresa, the late Nobel laureate and saint of the Latin church who worked for the poor in Calcutta. I'm not sure that the legacy of the missile woman is what her parents had in mind when selecting her namesake. Or how about British Foreign Secretary William Hague promoting British weapon sales to India on the same day that he announced plans to erect a statue of pacifist icon Mahanda Gandhi in London. On a two-day visit to India during which they confirmed a 250 million pound missile deal and pushed the merits of the Eurofighter Typhoon jet, Mr. Haig and Chancellor George Osborne visited the site where the independence leader was assassinated in 1948. Isn't it refreshing to hear that it's not just U.S. politicians who have really poor timing and sense of decorum in different situations? How about this for things not really meant to go together, celebrating the man responsible for bringing Christianity to a geographic region, seeing thousands baptized, including kings and peasants alike, by every year on the anniversary of his death, drinking large quantities of green beer and wearing kiss me, I'm Irish paraphernalia. I'm not sure that St. Patrick is being properly honored for the nature of of his missionary endeavors. Some things were always meant to be together, others never were. In our passage this morning, we're going to see John argue that for those who are in Christ, there is no room for a life of sin. Please turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're continuing our intermittent series there because those in Christ in a practice of sinning were never meant to go together if you're unfamiliar with the New Testament 1 John is near the very back just a couple of pages before the final book of Revelation 1 John chapter 3 we're going to be reading verses 4 through 10 Beginning in verse 4, the Apostle John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. One of the great cheery passages of the Bible. Do we remember the context that John is writing in? He's writing near the end of the first century as one of the last remaining apostles. When false teachers were beginning to appear and gain popularity, mixing their teaching with this growing Christian movement. And a significant purpose that John had in writing this letter was to combat these false teachers and to help believers in the early church distinguish between those that were truly from God and those that weren't. We see this referenced right here in verse 7 when he warns his readers not to let anyone to deceive them as he's talking about these principles. Specifically with the popular teaching of the time that sought to make sin of no consequence. Some things don't change that much over the centuries. These teachers were saying that the soul was all that mattered, the spiritual. And so whatever you wanted to do with your body, well, that was fine because it did not matter. It would not last. And so your body was yours to do with whatever you wanted. A free ticket to do whatever your heart desires. When I buy medicine for my kids, Tylenol or Advil, I'm confronted with choices. Bubble gum or berry. <laughs> Cherry or dye free. They're, they're exactly the same medicine, same box, same dosage, same quantity. The only difference is in the flavor. Today when we look at philosophies the world throws at us, we look at what it was doing back then, it's just a different flavor. Poison's still the same. It might be authority is evil. No one can tell you what to do. Maybe it's God wants you to be happy, so just do your thing. You have to be selfish sometimes because no one else is going to look out for you. In John's day, it was to discount the material world, to say it did not matter, it had no consequence. Today, it seems that the material world is often all that people believe in. Neither one of these views are prone to putting God first or promoting, serving, self-sacrificing relationships where we lay our lives down for the sake of one another. As Christians, we can be tempted to adopt or spiritualize elements that we see in the culture around us. We can be tempted to drink some of the same poison. In these verses, John makes two arguments that both lead to the same conclusion. And I think maybe a visual might help us see the flow of the passage more easily. The first half, verses 4 through 7. We have this introduction. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, and then he continues his argument. We have almost the identical opening. Whoever makes a practice of sinning in verses 8 through 10. Then we see the theme of each. In the first half, it's that the nature of sin is lawlessness. In the second half, the theme will be that the origin of sin is the devil. Then as we go down, we see in each that Christ comes he appears to specifically respond to those themes. He appeared in order to take away sins, we see in verse 5. In verse 8, we see the reason the Son of God 
appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, but each come to the same conclusion. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So what I want to do is look at these two arguments one at a time so that we can get the full weight of what John is saying in this passage. And as we do, we're just going to essentially follow this pattern as we go. The overarching idea of this whole passage is that a practice of sinning has no place with the children of God. The practice of sinning has no place with the children of God because of those two themes that we just saw. The nature of sin is lawlessness. And the origin of sin is not of God, it's of the devil. So let's begin with the first theme. The nature of sin is lawlessness. We read in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It starts off with this strong wording, everyone, everyone who, and in these short seven verses, John uses that phrase or a close variant nine different times, everyone who, everyone who, whoever, no one, all of these point out that these realities apply to all and that there are no exceptions. He is being comprehensive in who he is bringing this to. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, all that are in that category are included in what he is saying. They're also practicing lawlessness. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. It's not just that sin manifests itself in disregard for God's law, but that sin is in its very nature lawlessness. The the terms are essentially interchangeable. We see this reality throughout Scripture. Going back to the Garden of Eden, we see God making one prohibition, one rule. Thou shalt not eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One thing, one law, one aspect that they were called to obey. But in their ultimate defiance, they declared that even one was too many. They were unwilling to be subject to any law. As Matt began our introduction to the study of 1 Samuel a few weeks ago, he helped place us in the context of what was going on in the nation of Israel at the time as they were, God was building a case for the need of a king. And he did that by giving us a little overview of the, the book of Judges, where after Exodus and Joshua leading them to take possession of the promised land, there was a time of turmoil and trouble where the tribes were being led by different judges, but really if you read through the book of Judges as a nation, as a people, they just seemed utterly rudderless, without direction. Do you remember the repeated refrain used to describe their moral condition during those years? The author of Judges lists it a couple of times, but it says this, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the definition of sin. Lawlessness. Doing what's right in our own eyes. This was not a commendation. No authority, no moral compass. Every person being a law unto themselves. And really from this time, if you read through the book of Judges, you'll find some of the most disturbing accounts that Scripture has to offer as just this lawlessness is on display. Similarly, the prophet Isaiah 
spelled out the reason a suffering Savior was required in chapter 53, verse 6. Here's how he described the nature of our offense, the need to have a Savior. Because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have not followed God. We have not honored his way. But each one of us, it declares, have turned to our own way. That's why he said the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see again and again in Scripture this idea that the nature of sin is going our own way, disregarding God's authority, disregarding his revealed word. Lawlessness. But I want us to be clear that as we think about that term, lawlessness, that the antidote for lawlessness is not more rules or stricter adherence to certain rules. If the Pharisees teach us anything, it's that you can still go your own way while constructing a seemingly airtight and pious appearing set of regulations. In the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son, which, if we remember the context, was a parable he told in response to the Pharisees complaining about Jesus' acceptance of sinners, of being with them, of dining with them, of celebrating with them. He told the parable of the prodigal in response to that. And as he did so, he, he painted this picture of this one who had gone far away, astray, like the sinners that Jesus was hanging out with. But he also put someone else in that story, an older brother, who had the characteristics of the Pharisees themselves. And at the end of the story, we see it's that brother that's still on the outside. It's that brother that the father is still pleading with to come back in. His outward obedience, staying close to home, was not one of the heart. And so we see that functionally he was further astray than the prodigal was at the end. Lawlessness, going our own way. Friends, it takes many forms. Your particular brand of lawlessness is unique to you because it is you doing what is right in your own eyes. But it's still lawlessness. And no brand is more righteous than another. Well, this lawless nature of sin is the reason that Christ needed to come, just as we saw in Isaiah 53, 6. John says it in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, the verses just before this that we looked at last month highlighted Christ's second coming as the motivation for righteousness. If you remember this passage, John is pointing out Christ's first coming as a motivation for our righteousness. John is not highlighting a side benefit of Christ's appearing But he's saying this is the reason he came. You know this is the reason. He appeared in order to take away sins. This wasn't something that just happened. This was his purpose in coming from the beginning, in the first place. If there were no sin that needed to be dealt with, he wouldn't have needed to come, at least not in the way that he did come. And he came in this way to take away sins because in him there is no sin. Sin and lawlessness, 
They are totally against who he is. Notice the the present tense that John uses here in his description. In him there is no sin. He's not saying in him there was no sin when he was here on the earth. He's not saying before he came up in heaven that then there was no sin. No, he's saying this is who he is. In him there is no sin. This is part of his eternal nature and character. It is totally set against and opposed to sin and lawlessness. Eternally there is no sin in him. Eternally he is set against it. Eternally he is righteous and pure and holy and completely opposed to the pride of creatures he created for his good and glorious purposes going their own way. He's forever set against that. So how striking is it? The one in whom eternally there is no sin is the one that became sin for you and me. He, not because he was sinful, but because he stood in our place, took the penalty for all of our unrighteousness and bore it upon himself so that you and I don't have to bear that burden eternally. Who is like our God? Who could even dream this up? Well, given his righteous nature, his eternal opposition to sin, and his historic appearing to take away sin, it only makes sense that those who know him and are in him also have an aversion to sin. Sin cannot rest lightly on his people. John says it this way, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Wow. Again, we see John, well, he's not wrestling with any gray matter here either. No gray areas. No one. No one. No one who abides. No one who keeps on sinning. This isn't up for debate. God stepped into our world to take away sin because of his holy divine nature and his eternal opposition to it. So, John's saying, why would his people not reflect a similar disposition towards sin? John goes as far as saying, if you keep on sinning, you don't know him. You haven't even seen him. Not as he really is. Because to be confronted with who he really is, is to be transformed. Think Isaiah in the temple, seeing just even the train of God on his throne filling the place and him being undone, crying out, woe is me, crying out judgment upon himself. He could not walk out of there the same person. Or John, the author of this letter, in who was... Scripture would reveal the closest disciple of Jesus during his earthly ministry in the book of Revelation when he sees 
the resurrected, ascended Lord. It says he falls down as a dead man. He who is more familiar than any human. That's his response. He's just to hit the deck. Even the disciples in the boat as Jesus calms the storm. What's their response? Before they were afraid they're going to die. Scripture says that after the storm was calmed, then they were terrified. They were more afraid of who was in the boat with them than they were before that they were going to die. Seeing who he really is transforms us. And so John can say, hey, if you treat sin lightly, you you don't know him. You haven't even seen him. Seeing him for real changes everything. Friends, what we need to see from this is that righteousness is not following a set of do's and don'ts. Righteousness always comes by loving and relating with the righteous one. That's what righteousness is. It's not a list. Righteousness is a relationship with him who is righteous. It's loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what righteousness is. Sin and the Christian simply don't belong together. John says not only should we reflect his disposition, that's how we can tell who's who. Let me just say, being saved by grace, which is something we will cling to till our dying breath and beyond. Being saved by grace doesn't mean there's no need for righteousness. It means it's not the merit that gets us anything. It means it's not what our acceptance before God is based on. It's not our righteousness that gains us access. And even as we heard this morning from the word from Ephesians that was brought, even our righteousness, our good deeds, even that's of grace. But those deeds reveal whose we are as we relate to the righteous one it will be evident who we're relating to and this is where John transitions to his second argument of the practice of sin having no place with the children of God because the origin of sin is the devil the nature of sin that's lawlessness the origin of sin is not God it's the devil If the nature of sin is lawlessness which Christ came to eradicate, to do away with, his followers mustn't be marked by sin but by righteousness. So if sin does mark someone, it reveals they are following someone else. John says in verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Not only are those who make a practice of sinning not abiding in Jesus, John says they are of the devil. He is switching his emphasis from the nature of sin to its origin and revealing whose camp it places one in. And again, I I think we have to take note of the, the comprehensiveness of the apostle's language of his statement, whoever, everyone who makes a practice of sinning is of The devil, not some who make a practice of sinning or those that comprise a certain category of sin, 
but everyone who makes a practice of sinning. His conclusion about them has, again, no gray area. They are of the devil. There is no neutral ground. There are two camps and only two camps. There's no in-between. There's no third option. Whoever practices righteousness, he just said, is righteous. All who practice sinning are of the devil. Your actions reveal your alliance. So how are you feeling right now? Anyone need a break? Think about that fight on the way in this morning. That pattern of secret sin maybe no one else knows about. Thinking about that one area of life that you refuse to relinquish control over in your relationship with God. What questions does hearing this bring up in your soul? What is the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to? Where is he pursuing you right now? Again, John points out the purpose of Christ's appearing. Verse 8b, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So not only are there only two camps with no middle ground or neutral territory, the one camp is already doomed. And the reality is, as we look around us, when we observe the culture and where things are heading, not only here but around the world, we can be tempted to despair. To look around and think that the cause of righteousness is losing, that the devil is winning. If we consider the accelerating pace of cultural degradation, things that were considered fringe or even unthinkable or immoral just a couple decades back are now mainstream. We're confronted with disheartening Supreme Court decisions and political directions, sexual scandals in the church, another horrific shooting in the headlines. And that's just right around here. Go around and look at the rest of the world and we won't find things much better. We see genocide. We see dictatorships. We see all kind of evil. It can seem that the fight is futile. At least it can until we realize that the outcome has already been decided. John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus himself put it this way when the origin of his power was being questioned. He said in Luke chapter 11, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you, you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's what Jesus was saying. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It has arrived. The fact that I am doing these works, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, reveals the kingdom of God has come to earth. And we can look around us and say it's, it's not yet here in its completeness, even 2,000 years later. But it will be soon. He continues... When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is saying, look, Satan's goods, that which he once held sway and control and power over 
They're no longer safe. His kingdom is crumbling. Mine is advancing. He's saying, I'm stronger than he is. I have overcome him. I have taken away his armor, and now I'm starting to enjoy the spoils of the victory. Now, that, week, that work will be completed when Christ returns, but rest assured, it will be completed. It's guaranteed because of what he did when he appeared 2,000 years ago, when he came to destroy the works of the devil. He showed he is stronger, not only by casting demons out of the afflicted, but by breaking Satan's power forever when he bore sin's curse at Calvary, and rose victoriously three days later, defeating sin and death and stripping the devil of his most feared weapons. The battle we see raging around us is the last gasps of a spiteful enemy whose fate has already been decided. Oh, it might seem significant now, But he is ultimately impotent because the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So, because he has, a practice of sinning has no place with the children of God. Because the nature of sin is lawlessness and the origin of sin is the devil and Christ appeared to take away sins, and destroy the works of the devil. John Stott put it this way, if Christ appeared first, both to take away our sins and to destroy the devil's work, and if when he appears a second time we shall see him, and in consequence we shall be like him, how can we possibly go on living in sin? To do so would deny both his appearings, If we would be loyal to his first coming and ready for his second, we must purify ourselves as he is pure. By so doing, we shall give evidence of our birth of God. The Apostle John takes it even further. For the believer, sin's practice is not merely incompatible He says it's impossible. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Those that have been born of God, those that have God's spirit dwelling within them will not, cannot, John says, keep on sinning because of who has given them new life. Because they are born anew. And being born into his family doesn't just change your last name. It gives you a new will to fight. It comes with the Spirit himself helping you in your battle with sin. Righteousness isn't produced by following a list of do's and don'ts, but by abiding in him, by seeing and knowing and relating to the righteous one. As we get to this passage, John has not switched from the calls he's made throughout this book to abide in Christ to some external measure of righteousness. No, righteousness is loving God. Loving him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and then to love your neighbor as yourself, which is confirmed 
by the very last phrase that John slips in here. It's something that again and again he has come back to in this letter. He again equates loving our brother with righteousness. Because love, love is righteousness. It's righteousness revealed in relationship. Which should be a helpful clarifier for us as, as we ask questions considering what it looks like to turn from lawlessness and going our own way. What, what set of rules is it that we need to follow to be righteous? Well, here it is. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again and again, John has reminded us of Jesus' summation of the law and the prophets, calling us to love God and to love one another. If we follow the law of love, we'll be following the Savior. If we follow the law of love, you'll be pursuing righteousness. Now, by now, I, I think for most of us, you've no doubt picked up on a very important word in these Verses, it's been repeated several times that we haven't gone into detail yet, and it's really important that we get to it before we wrap up. It's the word practice. Eight or nine times, I think John uses the phrase, the practice of sinning, to keep on sinning in these verses. What he's talking about is not just the presence of any sin, it's the practice of sinning, the persistence of sin. After all, he's talking about a determined direction, not merely the presence of sin, because we, we have to know even in this context, two chapters ago, John himself has stated to us if we say that we have no sin, 1 John 1, 8, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's not saying that any of us are going to have an existence in this life that is utterly apart from sin. He recognizes the reality that all of us do and will continue to sin, and he's put out that promise for us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's very aware that sin remains. What he's talking about here is not a particular act of sin, but a prevailing habit a persistence in sin, a character that knowingly relishes sin. Because until we see him and are made like him in glory, we will continue to struggle with sin. But he's saying here, if we are born of him, we will not persist in it. We will not treasure it. We will be grieved by our sin, by its effects. We will struggle against the practice of sin. And I want to give you some reassurance that if you have been convicted of a particular sin or pattern sitting here this morning, well, that's likely a pretty good indication that you have been born of God. It reveals the activity of his spirit in your life. To not excuse your sin, but wanting to be rid of it. And he's calling you to further reveal your sonship by receiving his help to gain victory over it. To realize that the devil has been disarmed. That Christ's power in you is the same power that raised him from the dead. We show whose we are 
by how we relate to sin. Do we embrace it? Do we secretly treasure it? Or do we grow in our dissatisfaction with it and our desire to be rid of it? And if you're here this morning and you are unaware of your ability, of an ability to fight against sin, it may be because you have never made Christ your treasure. You've never had your love for him overwhelm your love for sin. The good news is that you don't have to remain a slave to your sin. You don't have to stay in that place. After all, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to set the captives free. If you're in that place, ask him to rescue you from your lawlessness and rebellion and you're going your own way and all the penalties your sins have accrued, this is the reason he appeared 2,000 years ago. This is the work he will complete when he returns, this time in glory. Every knee shall see him. I say that? When every eye shall see him. When every knee on seeing him will bow before him. Every tongue confess. He's Lord. He deserves the glory. He deserves our allegiance. He deserves not our pride and our going our own way, but our subjection to him. Him who has created us for his good and glorious purposes. Every one of our tongues, every tongue of every creature on the earth and under the earth and in heaven above will proclaim on that day his lordship. Maybe you have experienced God's gracious help to overcome different sins in the past, but you're currently struggling with a particular sin or pattern of sin. Let me encourage you. Don't keep it in the darkness. Bring it into the light. Ask God for help. But also seek out a trusted friend. Seek out a care group leader. Seek out someone that you can share your struggle with Ask them to pray for you and invite them to ask you how you're doing later this week, in a couple more weeks. Humble yourself. It's not easy. But it's also the power to see the sin in your life broken. Because as we humble ourselves, God delights to give grace to the humble. It's in our pride that he opposes us. And let us not stop at putting off the sin that entangles us. But let us seek to put on righteousness by putting on love. Pursue the God who has pursued you. Pursue a Christ-reflecting, sacrificial love of those around you. Replace the chains of sin with a greater affection. Affection for God and for the people he's placed around you. The practice of sinning has no place with the children of God because the nature of sin is lawlessness and the origin of sin is the devil. Christ appeared to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil so we can display righteousness by loving God and one another. John was giving his readers a way to distinguish false teachers from true, and in his words, we are wise to find a caution for ourselves to make sure our lives are also consistent with our profession of faith. But there's also encouragement to be taken here as well. 
that those born of God will not keep on sinning, will not forever be ensnared. We are not helpless in our fight and in our struggle. We have His Spirit and we will overcome sin. And one day, all of its entanglements in our own struggle against sin, remember, we do so as children of God. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer trapped. We're no longer helpless. We're no longer hopeless. Some things were always meant to go together. Sin and those born of God never were. Let's show whose we are by our response to sin in our lives. Let's give him glory as he gives us victory over it. Would you pray with me? Father, how, how humbling it is simply to be confronted by the truth of your word. Knowing our own hearts and how prone they are to wander. How prone we are to go our own way. Being reminded of how utterly set against us going our own way you are both for your glory and for our good as we see that you have come to destroy the works of the devil to remove sin oh would you help us to have that desire to reflect you in that to remove it from our lives, to see it destroyed and broken in our lives, in our congregation. Would you help us to care for one another as we run this race? Help us to run faithfully. Help us to reveal whose we are as we show the righteousness of loving you and loving one another, we pray. Let's stand together.